This weekend in Greater Manchester, Ramadan, Easter and Passover all converged for the first time in 33 years. It was a weekend of gatherings and celebrations, festivities and families and friends coming together against a backdrop of conflict. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the editor of The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper, delivered by email. Yoshi, uh, hi, happy, uh, well I think we're we're beyond happy Easter aren't we, but uh, did you have a nice Easter? I had a lovely Easter, big deal for my mum and her household, so um, nice to be with her over the weekend. Good, lots of chocolate consumed? Bit of chocolate consumed, my mum's German so there's a certain amount of sort of uh, painting of of eggs um and uh, actually we we didn't do the painting this year but they're sort of getting the, getting the painted eggs out of the cupboards yes. and uh hanging them hanging them around the house that sort of thing so yeah it was lovely lovely very very nice very nice the ukrainian community in greater manchester have been following a similar tradition the eastern european tradition of egg painting this week we're going to hear um all about it and head into the ukrainian community who are marking uh, easter with the traditional festivities but of course against a backdrop of conflict in europe we're going to hear from uh, maria who we spoke to a couple of weeks ago you may remember alongside her partner jez they were uh, at the airport in uh, poland weren't they at the time and, and Yoshi, she's written a, a piece for The Mill this weekend. We're going to hear from her shortly about her reflections as she embeds herself into Manchester. Yeah, Maria came into the office a few weeks ago. I think Danny invited her in and she told us about her experiences. And obviously we'd already spoken to her on the podcast before and her and Jazz. So she has written a really lovely piece for us that a lot of you would have read, a lot of our listeners would have read over the weekend about Ukrainian Easter, but also what it's like to celebrate a national festival, have a big sort of national day when your, your country is at war. I thought that was a really lovely piece and um, it'd be, yeah, it'd be really good to chat to her on this podcast. We're also going to hear from the Mills, Danny Cole, uh, who went along to, she was invited along to mark uh, Iftar, which is the uh, breaking of the fast, the sundown breaking of the fast uh, with a family in South Manchester. So some really lovely reflections from Danny and from uh, a greater Manchester that spent the weekend coming together, didn't it, in uh, religious festivities and celebrations. Um, Let's start, though, uh, Yoshi, with a big story in the last uh, couple of days, a couple of hours, in fact, there's been developments on this, hasn't there? And... uh, uh, this is um, the continuing story of the Rochdale grooming gangs, Yoshi. Where are we up to this week? I think there have been a couple of important developments recently in this story. The first development is that three victims of grooming in Rochdale, who were aged between 12 and 14 when their victimisation took place. If you remember the TV programme, the BBC drama Three Girls, two of the women's cases that we're talking about here formed the basis of that drama. These three victims have won substantial damages from Greater Manchester Police in a sort of out-of-court settlement, i.e. it's a civil case that didn't reach courts. They were arguing in this case that their human rights had been breached by the police's failure to protect them. The BBC said, reported, instead of being viewed as child victims of sexual abuse, they were branded by police as, quote, bad or, quote, unreliable witnesses and were sometimes arrested themselves. So they've not only have they received damages, they've received an in-person apology from the chief constable, Stephen Watson, who said, and I quote, that it's a matter of profound personal regret that your childhood was so cruelly 
impacted by the dreadful experiences which you endured. He also said, GMP could and should have done more to protect you, and we let you down. I think that's a big development. Um, this, this case has been rumbling on for a while with the backing of a, of a, of a women's advocacy charity who've been helping these um, three women. There's a separate claim that they've got going on at the moment against the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, and, and, and the CPS are not commenting at the moment. And if people want to see more about this particular bit of the story, there was an Observer interview over the weekend in which one of these women spoke, I think, properly for the first time in any sort of length. And, you know, the story was quite striking because it's about how one of these young women, teenagers at the time, was kind of went from being treated as a victim to be tr being treated essentially as like a one of the co-perpetrators. As that observer piece said, and I quote, because she was not involved in the trial and therefore did not give evidence, she had no opportunity to defend herself. She was vilified and nicknamed in the press as the honey monster. Although a court order prevented her being named, everyone in her local community knew who she was. That's a really interesting piece to go and read if people want a bit of the background on this um, legal case against GMP. And there is a second significant development as well recently, isn't there, Yoshi? Yeah, that's right. Seven men from Rochdale were charged last month um, with a huge number of offences um, relating to, you know, what's been described as, as grooming and that kind of sexual exploitation in, in Rochdale. It's the result of a big police investigation that actually, if you were reading the mill right at the beginning, which we don't expect to have done, have done but I think about a month after I started the mill, uh, we broke the story that there was a new police investigation called Operation Lytton. Um, you, I think we broke that story in July 2020, and it was subsequently reported in, in lots of other media outlets. We reported that officers were looking at offences um, that might have been committed um, between 2002 and 2006. Um, and and, and I, we wrote at the time, the time period mentioned by the police is striking. It suggests police have won the cooperation of a different set of victims in Rochdale. So that's going to be an interesting one to, to, to follow as well. There's one man involved in those charges who has been charged with 21 offences. There's another man who's been charged with 17 offences, you know, including things like rape, um, engaging in sexual activity with a child, uh, gross indecency. So kind of, you know, just now we were talking about how the original trial and the original victims who gave evidence before the big Rochdale grooming trial, the original one that everyone knows about from the TV programme, that has kind of had this big development of an apology from the police. And what we're talking about here is another chapter about this kind of sexual abuse in Rochdale is now opening with new charges. Um, some of these men are, are going to be appearing in court again um, next month in Manchester. So the, the very long and very sad and very dark story of sexual abuse of, of teenage girls in Rochdale um, sadly goes on. We'll keep an eye on that as well as those um, uh, as that story continues to develop, Yoshi. Um, elsewhere this week, uh, a really disturbing story after some uh, uh, distasteful, to say the least, interventions and chants from uh, sets of fans from both of Manchester's clubs, Manchester United fans and Manchester City fans, being heavily criticised this week, Yoshi. What happened? Well, I think the first incident that got people talking was that some Man City fans disturbed a minute silence for the victims of Hillsborough at Wembley. And then what happened this week is that some United fans were caught chanting 
like a really horrible chant at Anfield when Manchester United were playing Liverpool. And I quote, the sun was right, you're murderers. Like a horrible thing to say. Um, it's prompted obviously a lot of soul searching. I think Andy Burnham is personally very unhappy about it. He's been someone who's campaigned for the victims of Hillsborough for many years now. It's been one of his really big sort of emotional issues for him to be leading a city where like with two different football clubs now have fans that are, you know, acting really appallingly when it comes to Hillsborough, I think is really disappointing. Andy Burnham put a statement out this week, said, we all fiercely support our clubs, but singing about any disaster where people died should be a line that true football supporters never cross. Um, so that's what Burnham said. I mean, I think it's always worth reminding people, I'm sure every listener knows this by now, but just because of how awful these kind of chants are, I think it's worth reminding people, you know, 97 fans who died at that day on Hillsborough um, were in official terms, in legal terms now, they were unlawfully killed. We now know that from the inquest, which happened a few years ago. Um, the jury at those inquests found that the match commander on that day, um, who was a guy called David Duckenfield, was, and I quote, responsible for manslaughter by gross negligence uh, due to a, a breach of his, his duty of care in, in the organisation of, of, of the crowd of that game. Police errors effectively created a situation which was really dangerous for the fans. And the fans themselves, in the eyes of the jury and in the eyes of these inquests, were entirely blameless. So that's the message that I think Andy Burnham wants to get out there to a, to a broader audience. I'm sure that both Man United and Man City also do. And it's pretty um, heartbreaking that this kind of thing still goes on at football games. For sure. And, you know, especially if you contrast that, uh, Yoshi, I was watching the Manchester United versus Liverpool game, Liverpool United game at Anfield uh, on on Wednesday night. And the the um, uh, minutes applause that the Liverpool fans instigated on the seventh minute for Cristiano Ronaldo after some sad news for his family this week, the loss of one of his twins at birth. And the, the, the singing of you'll never walk alone in, in solidarity and support with him for uh, some sections of the Manchester United fans to respond in the way that they did. Um, I mean, you know, not that anything could possibly make it more distasteful, but um, but it certainly does put that into stark contrast, doesn't it, for sure? Yeah, it was, it was a sharp contrast. It was really moving that um, the Liverpool fans do that. And for non-football fan listeners, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's number is number seven. Therefore, on the seventh minute, um, these fans, you know, reacted to the you know, the tragic loss of his baby by um, by 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 doing that applause and also by singing. So, yeah, just, just there's such a contrast between that really, like, classy and, and, and really, like, thoughtful sort of behaviour and the way that some fans from United and some fans from City have ruined these, these Hillsborough, Hillsborough memorials. Hmm. The best and the worst of us on display that night, for sure. Um, OK, um, elsewhere, Yoshi, this week, uh, we may have just had um, Easter... Uh, but it's political Christmas in a fortnight's time. Uh, we've got a. Did you see what I did there? Was that quite pleased with that in a way? <laughs> um, or maybe it's political Easter actually, because it's not a general election. Maybe a general election is political Christmas, and we've got political Easter around the corner because these are the local elections. Of course, uh, they take place next. Uh, they take place for Thursday, the fifth of May. I'm sure you've got that uh, etched in your diary. And as ever, Yoshi, Greater Manchester is shaping up to be uh, an extraordinary tapestry, isn't it? Loads of uh, individual stories, stories that are sort of uh, that, that that kind of reflect the the, the individual town's politics, and some stories that reflect national politics. Uh, it's a feast again, isn't it? Well, you know, if we are if we are casting this as an Easter event, then 
it's possible that Labour might come back from the dead in Bolton, where their Tories have been the biggest party and the Tories have been running the council. And Labour is hoping to overtake them this time. Um, I think The Guardian has named Bolton as one of the sort of races to watch. And a recent bit of polling that came out last week seemed to indicate that the Conservatives might be in danger of losing uh, their running of, of Bolton Council too. So that's one to watch. Stockport is on a knife edge. Uh, the Lib Dems have one more seat than Labour in Stockport, but they don't run the council because they couldn't get the Conservatives to agree with 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 replacing the, the Labour administration there. So you've got this Labour administration, actually, that doesn't have as many seats on the council as the Lib Dems. If the Lib Dems were to pick up two or three more, then it, it would be increasingly difficult to see how Labour could carry on running that council. Labour are hoping to pick up one or two of their own. Um, I've been speaking to people there and, and everyone seems to think some of these some of these races were so tight um, when they were last run a few years ago that it could be a very, very difficult one to predict. Labour's also nervous about losing seats in Oldham. Arush Shah, who's the leader there, is, is slightly vulnerable, people think, um, to, a, to a Conservative challenger. So we'll be keeping an eye on that one, particularly because of this whole background of the stuff we've reported on the mail about uh, politics in Oldham and conspiracy theories and allegations about unconvicted grooming gangs and and, and the, the guy Raja Mir, who we've talked about on the podcast before, and the kind of influence of those ideas. So it'll be interesting to watch Oldham, even though nothing's going to change in terms of who's running the council in, in any likelihood. You've got some some interesting dynamics of, of Labour losing seats. And then in Bury, you've got all out elections, which means like not just a third of the councillors are up, but all of them are. To be honest, I wouldn't claim to be any sort of expert on what's happening in Barry. I'm going to speak to a few people about it tonight, so maybe we can come back to it um, in, in a future podcast. But you've got the interesting dynamic of a Conservative MP who has who has left the party to go to Labour. You've also got an interesting dynamic in Barry, like you've got in Bolton, of local independent parties kind of causing absolute chaos. Um, in, in Barry, that tends to happen in Radcliffe. Um, and you, it's really difficult to predict those races because these because you've got kind of this this new dynamic that basically doesn't exist in the national polling. So yeah, an interesting interesting set of elections. Not sure anyone is describing it as, as exciting as Christmas, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, there's, there's there's quite a lot on the line here. Depends how good your Christmases are, doesn't it? I suppose um, uh, we're gonna hopefully we'll we'll uh, we'll have plenty of coverage of it. Uh, you certainly will in in the mill, no doubt. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe, and really worth going back and reading uh, if you haven't read it already. Uh, the reportage from Oldham and the uh, the sort of insurgent candidates and the uh, a conspiracy uh, theorist with a YouTube account and some really 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 fascinating themes through Oldham's politics that are worth reading back. Manchestermill.co.uk to do that. And hopefully we'll have uh, some more of uh, the coverage of that election when it ticks around on the 3rd of May on the Manchester Weekly. So be with us, subscribe, make sure you get us in your podcast feed. Now, a few weeks ago on the podcast, you'll remember, we met partners Maria and Jez on their way to Manchester. They were fleeing Ukraine, or Maria was. Jez had gone to pick her up at the outbreak of the war. We spoke to them from the departure lounge at an airport in Poland, literally as we spoke, waiting to board a flight to Manchester, full of uncertainty at what was to come and concern for the family that they'd left behind. Well, this week, Maria wrote a piece for The Mill, which is a fascinating insight, a window into the Ukrainian community 
over Easter weekend who were, of course, trying to continue the festivities, bring their family and friends together and find some sense of normality with the backdrop of war and conflict in their home country. We can speak to Maria now. She settles into life in Manchester. Maria, hi. Thank you for being with us on the Manchester Weekly. Um, How are you? I'm okay. You know, I'm in a I would say, I mean, I feel like, I always feel like it's a bit too selfish to talk about myself because obviously I'm in safety now, I'm in the UK, uh, but I'm definitely in a better place now because the first couple of weeks, well, the first week was obviously super hectic and difficult for me and my partner when we were escaping the war and we were in that 23-hour queue and it took us 40 hours to uh, get into Poland and then it took us further sort of four nights for four days to sort out my um, permission to get to the UK and then the first couple of weeks in the UK have been quite busy as well sorting out my family visa and doing uh, various other things between like media appearances writing etc but yeah I've settled down now I feel much calmer I've got my mum here now which is good news Um, so I would say I'm okay and how, how much contact are you having with friends and, and with family who are, who are still in Ukraine? Uh, well, I talk to my family who are still in Ukraine, which is my brother and my, my dad uh, and my 92-year-old grandma. Uh, I talk to them regularly. Um, I see my friends' updates on social media all the time. Um, so I would say, you know, it's... I would say, like, every... every few minutes I can see something from them whether it's just on social media or it's me um, talking to my family so I'm constantly in touch. What stories do they tell? Um, well right now I would say I'm in Kiev and uh, Kiev region were a bit quieter for some time which was good news so my dad used to tell me how bad it was where he was even though his town didn't have any active fighting or any bombs dropped on it he was very 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 close to very um, war-torn areas and that meant that his windows were constantly like shaken which were, you know after every explosion um, and he got pieces of Russian missiles in his garden um, so it, it was very loud all, all the time and he said 90% of the town uh, left the town um, so that time it was I think it was very very difficult for him and uh, since Russia's supposed withdrawal from the Kiev region, uh, he told me that it was much quieter. Um, and now, of course, we've had um, a few concerns when we keep sort of hearing sirens again, um, people in Kiev as well. So uh, Russia is supposedly focusing on the Donbass now, but I don't think we really know until we see because, you know, there's a lot of things they've been saying that turned out not to be true. So I think it's wait and see, but it was yeah, it was a period of a couple of weeks when it was um, definitely slightly better for at least people in the Kiev region in Kiev. And Maria, since you've been in Manchester, you wrote a beautiful piece for us over the weekend about Ukrainians preparing for Easter. You've obviously had some contacts with other Ukrainians who've been coming over slowly for, via different routes. Tell, tell us about that. Tell us what kind of people you're hearing about and meeting who are, who are kind of joining you in the UK. Yeah, so um, I think the arrival of Ukrainians um, into the UK and Manchester is quite slow because mm. of, the whole, um, of the whole Homes for Ukrainian process being very slow. So my mom, for my mum, it took 17 days to receive her visa. 
my family visa was processed in less than 48 hours. <laughs> so uh, it seems like it's very difficult for people who are still in Ukraine to get permission and a visa to get into Ukraine. So that's why there's not many, so many people, at least uh, among the people um, in Greater Manchester uh, that I've heard about arriving. We have, so my partner Jazz uh, and I have set up uh, WhatsApp groups for he on his side has doing the uh, support for hosts uh, for UK families in Stockport, which is where we are, um, to support them. He's getting a lot of messages there from the hosts. They've got lots of several, lots of different questions because they're still waiting for their Ukrainians to come here. In uh, my chat, it's very quiet still. Nobody really has joined, I think. But I do know that um, a couple of people have arrived, but probably are still settling in. So I've not really heard from them. I know that at the East Day one where I went, there were some Ukrainians who recently arrived. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to talk to the very recent arrivals, um, but I know that they are somewhere around. It just, uh, there's very few of them and um, probably still sort of recovering from everything that happened. Although I did meet another family that recently came and they are in, in Manchester. I met two teenagers who are now living in um, in Manchester who've come over with their mum. And um, they that only happened because the one of the teenagers wrote a post on Facebook to basically try and find a partner to partner up with, a partner family. So he had, even though he's only 17, he had kind of made, taken the initiative himself and then he'd been given some help by some Ukrainians in Yorkshire to... To make the connection, but it was nice to it was nice to meet these these kids who were like kind of happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And what is what is what is the sort of rhythm of life like for the for the Ukrainian community here in Greater Manchester at the moment? And, and I, I, you know, for me, it seems unthinkable to witness what's happening at home and to live a normal life day to day here in Greater Manchester. Yeah, I would say it's very yeah, it is very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult for me. I'm I'm lucky in a sense that I already went to the university to a university here in the UK. I went to school here, so I spent five years in the UK before I'm quite um, accustomed to life here. So you know, I'm not like um, in an unfamiliar surrounding. Basically, obviously, I've got my partner here as well, but I can I can judge from my mom who was just arrived uh, a week ago now. I think. Um, she's really struggled with many things, even though she's got us, you know, she's not right into a random family that she's never met before. But um, she's struggled with like going to a supermarket, even though we've got Morrison's uh, three minutes away. Um, but she's just, you know, struggling with like navigating around here and um, which aisle she needs for sort of things that she she's used to. Like, for example, she didn't know that in the UK you weigh apples by you know they don't weigh them but you sort of buy them by items so if it's five apples it's like the same price like she's so used to weighing <laughs> apples and veggies and fruit so for her it's like loads of new things and she's been struggling a little bit with that until today I sort of went with her I showed her around and I think it was a bit easier but there are so many things that are very new to Ukrainians to you too different cultures um so I know that it's very difficult and uh, obviously this is all on top of having to um stay in touch with your uh, family your friends and worry about them and read the news so there's a lot of new things and a lot of um accommodation and you know just acclimatization as you probably would say as well have you had the chance Maria just to to pause to think about where you're up to and what your future looks like 
A little bit. I mean, I think all of us can't really. So that there's an interesting um, like tendency that I've heard, not just from, you know, it's not just something that's happening to me, but I also heard it from another Ukrainian. She basically said she's come from a very well off um, sort of um, lifestyle uh, in Ukraine. And um, so she had to flee with her children and she's in Manchester now. Um, and she's been telling me like, I've used to planning my life uh, three years in advance and now I can't even plan like months in advance uh, and I would say the same thing I'm so like I'm always been very good at like planning things and writing out like a plan for three years for the next year for the next week and now you just kind of understand that you can't really do that because you never really you can't really plan that far so there's a lot of unknowns in here and I think that's what everybody's finding very difficult. I'm sure. Uh, Maria, it's been um, it's been a real joy to be able to catch up with you and to talk to you again, Maria. And your piece is wonderful. It's a it's a window into the Ukrainian community uh, marking the Easter weekend under the most extraordinary circumstances. Thank you for writing it, Maria. And thank you for speaking to us on the podcast this week. Thank you, Daryl. And thank you, Yoshi. As we said earlier on the podcast, this year, Passover, Ramadan and Easter all coincided for the first time in 33 years. And as we've been hearing, Ukrainians in Manchester celebrating the Easter weekend, Muslims in Greater Manchester have been marking the Islamic Holy Month with the traditional sacrifices of the fast, but also a time of great joy and celebration and family gathering. The Mills' Danny Cole was invited along to Iftar, which is the sundown breaking of the fast, by a family in South Manchester this week, and she sent us this report. The sun has finally set in Didsbury, and I've just come from a lovely iftar, um, an evening meal that Muslims traditionally break their fast with during Ramadan. Um, I've been invited by Allah, who is a volunteer at MacFest, the Muslim Arts and Culture Festival um, that sort of runs um, in Manchester. And she invited me into her home to have this lovely meal and she prepared me um, three or four um, very simple dishes. Um, and I got to meet her husband, Ayman, and her eldest daughter, Miriam, who is currently studying for her GCSEs. Um, it was a really lovely atmosphere. The, the whole inside of the house was decorated in, in lights and um, sort of bunting with traditional um, Egyptian um, patterns and Islamic patterns. Um, Allah and her husband Ayman are originally from Egypt, but they moved to Manchester in 2019 um, because they decided they wanted their children to have the best schooling as possible. Um, the first, their first proper Ramadan um, coincided with the 2020 lockdown. Um, and they told me that the pandemic was difficult for them, especially because Ramadan is such a such a special time for community and sharing meals with friends and family um, and especially the fact that they'd moved to a new country and were still finding their feet here. Okay Yoshi take us into the mill newsroom my friend what are you um, what are you working on what's happening? Yeah Danny's working on a really interesting piece at the moment about a woman who studies bodies that have been preserved in like bog lands so around Lancashire and um, around all around Manchester in the north so that's going to be a fascinating piece. We're also keeping an eye on the local elections. So if you're a mill member, you have uh, got a little update from us um, this week about that. We're going to keep on looking at some of these races. So if you, any of our listeners are involved in local politics, uh, please do get in touch. Lovely. Um, and should we have a bit of a nod for the week ahead as well then? Uh, in and around Greater Manchester, what should people be doing, Yoshi? What's on your radar? 
My rec for the weekend is an antiques and vintage textile fair that Danny told me about. Uh, she's going, it's happening on Sunday, uh, starts in morning on Sunday at the Armage Centre at the University in Manchester. And I think that looks like a lot of fun. Lovely. Uh, my nod for this weekend is the it's the final weekend of Les Miserables at the Lowry, uh, which I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a I don't know if I confess this I'm a bit of a super fan of Les Miserables. I've seen it a lot several times uh, on the West End, uh, and I've had the movie on repeat, which is something that I definitely shouldn't confess to uh, <laughs> in in public. Never mind on a podcast that's going to probably outlive me. Um, uh, but it is at the Lowry this weekend. I've managed to get a ticket. I didn't get any tickets, but I've managed to get a ticket for tomorrow night. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. And there are still a handful of tickets left for this weekend. Uh, there's a couple of tickets that are really expensive that people have brought or brought back. Or there's, or, or here's a tip for you. Uh, there's £20 standers. Uh, so you can stand basically at the back of the Lowry uh, for wow. 20 quid. I've never done that. So I can't I can't tell you how good or awful an experience that would be. And Les Miserables is a long time uh, to be standing at the back of the Lowry. Uh, but if it'll be, you, it'll, be a bit like being, it'll be a bit like being on the barricades themselves in Paris. Exactly. Exactly, it, will, yes. it, will give you, it will give you some of the physicality of the revolution. <laughs> you can immerse yourself in the French Revolution, absolutely. Um, uh, so that's worth checking out if you get the chance. Um, and uh, and if that's not for you this weekend, uh, the fe- the whiskey festival uh, begins uh, on Sunday. Uh, this is sort of centred around the whiskey jar. It's the thing that they do. Uh, it lasts for a whole month, so there's plenty of festivities involved. Uh, if you search for the whiskey jar online, you'll find a, a whole list of things that they do: live music and um, uh, uh, whiskey tastings obviously, and food tastings and samplings of uh, foods that go alongside some of the whiskies that they serve. It starts on Sunday night, which is a bit of a dangerous time uh, to be starting a drinking-based festival. Uh, it's going to make Monday morning a bit difficult for several people, I would imagine, uh, but it lasts a month, so really worth checking out the whiskey festival centred around the whiskey jar. Okay, that's it from us for this week on the Manchester Weekly. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a brand new episode of the Manchester Weekly in your podcast feed every week. Yoshi's not here next week, actually, but Danny, uh, the editor of The Mill, will be with us. Uh, we plough on uh, Yoshi-less next week. Uh, we'll be back in your podcast feed at the same time. And we also, Yoshi, like... Reviews absolutely please 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 leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to the mill as well more quality journalism like this direct to your inbox manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe 